You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. On Max's Island today, our guest is SJC. Welcome to Max's Island. Thank you for having me. Um, It's an honor to be here. Um, A shock, frankly, but an honor nonetheless. SJC, it's always great to have new people that we've only just met. So it's fantastic to know you. And I'm really looking forward to getting to know you a little better when you telling our listeners on Max's Island a story about that time in your life where you did something for yourself, everything changed maybe, or where you made a decision that was pivotal in changing direction in your life, career, whatever it might be. Can you share with our listeners on Max's Island a time in your life when that might have happened to you? So I kind of... I mark the beginning of my growth at about in about 2016 because it was such a pivotal year for me. I left a previous employer, started a new job, took myself on my first vacation ever. And where was that? With it, I took myself to Bali. So uh-huh. I rented my a lovely little compound for 21 days and there were going to be no, there's nobody else around but the masseuses and the 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 driver that I hired to take me to dinner and stuff like that take me around the around um the the area where I was staying and it was really weird for me because I'm not used to doing things for myself and so I tend to as part of my anxiety disorder, start catastrophizing in the lead in to anything that could potentially be important for me. And in the weeks leading into my mother's passing, all I could think to myself is something's going to go wrong. There's a problem, something's gonna go wrong and it's gotta do with mom. And was that whilst you were in Bali? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. It was the lead into and the eight days that I got to spend <laughs> in Bali before I got a message on WhatsApp from my sister saying, you need to come home, something's wrong. I 
Shouts out to Flight Center because they completely took care of me. <laughs> um, they got me on a plane from Bali back to Sydney and then to Los Angeles inside of 24 hours. Essentially, the issue was that my mom had a series of brain tumors. And in January of 2016, I believe is when she had her operation to remove the larger mass. Everything was looking fine. She was progressing, <laughs> progressing. Two days after, less than a day after the surgery, my mother was walking around, literally looking at her doctors like, can I leave now or what? Um, if you didn't know her, you wouldn't have known that she had undergone brain surgery. So I'm in Bali, I'm having lunch. I jump onto the Wi-Fi at the restaurant that I'm at and there's the message, get myself back to LA. And it turns out that the space where the tumor was, was starting to fill with blood and that was beginning to increase the pressure on her brain. We basically were told, this is it, it's done. They couldn't give us an exact timeline, but they were very clear that this unfortunately is the final stroke. So mercifully, my new employer gave me a tremendous amount of latitude because of what I do for work. I can pretty much work anywhere and have done for 18 years. So I flew back and forth between the US and Australia from, I guess it would be October all the way through to December when she passed. And at the time I recognized that the entire situation was A, traumatizing me, but more importantly, going to be the straw that broke the camel of my psychological back. And boy, howdy, I wasn't wrong. I grew up in a very volatile household. And as the middle child and as a Virgo and as someone with obsessive compulsive disorder, I've learned to disassociate from myself at a really long, at a really young age in order to help manage the turmoil and tumult that was going on in the household. I have a younger sister and a, a younger brother and an older sister. And growing up in that home with a, uh, just a staggering amount of domestic violence, I, I learned to absent myself from my body so that my logical brain could take over and handle the situation, be it calling the police or getting him off or whatever it happened to be. Anyway, when she passed, I recognized that that was going to cause a more profound disassociation, but I didn't understand what it was going to look like. I thought that I could just continue to proceed through life and mourn however mourning takes place for most, however mourning is supposed to take place, which is a, not actually a thing. It happens to you how and when it wants to. But I've managed to disassociate from the pain of her passing from the literal untethering I have to the world because she was the connection. And it led to me beginning to act out in ways that I had never 
behaved before and I had no idea why it was happening. I became hypersensitive to my interactions with my colleagues and I didn't allow myself any form of rest because I figured, I figured if I just kept going, I could push through this and make it to the other side. So SJC, let me just get the context. So on the year that your mother passed, you were working in Australia. How many years? 22. So you'd always been going back and forth to the States? Whenever I could, yes. So to deal with this grief, you went back more regularly. Mm -hmm. And did it become different once your mother passed? It was massively different because I wasn't, I was going back to help care for her as she was dying. And for any of your listeners who have ever had a, a loved one in hospice care, watching the deterioration of that individual is probably one of the most intense things you'll ever see in your life. What you hear happening to my voice now is my trauma response because my body is reliving what I experienced in 2016. It's going to stop in a second. Bear in mind, it's going to keep doing that, but that's, it's a thing that ha- that is a part of my life that I had actively been trying to suppress and I didn't realize um, the impact. It also must have been really difficult as you indicated your, your mother's deterioration in hospice, but the fact that you had breaks where it wasn't continuous, where you'd come back and I guess, you know, weeks, months apart and there would be some confronting changes in her condition that would have made it even more difficult. Absolutely. It was, I spent on and off three weeks in the States, two weeks back in Sydney to basically catch up on work, get my team moving in a direction that was sustainable for my organization. But then also so that I could save some more money so I could get another plane ticket so I could get back on the plane to go home. My mother was fortunate enough to do hospice at home and her nurses and doctors and everyone who supported her through that transition were phenomenal. What I was doing when I went home was taking over as her day-to-day carer. So that involved me doing things like giving her sponge baths and changing her diaper when she could no longer, when she was no longer ambulatory. Before she passed, the last thing she said to me, which may not necessarily be the last words she spoke, but the last words she said to me before I flew back to Sydney the week before she passed was, I wish I did more. And every single day, that every single day, every time it comes into my head, it ends me. Why do you think she said that? The list is long and distinguished. Um, A variety of things. But I think at the end of the day, and I imagined 
that she was looking back on her 56 years. And somewhere in that, um, in that journey, she recognized that there were some things that she just wasn't done with yet. And she wanted to, she wanted to pursue. Um, and it's, it's, it's haunted me ever since it haunts me daily. Do you think she has passed on some of that to you from a point of view of the expectation of fulfilling and doing things? And do you think that was nearly like a, a gift or a message to you that, that there was a, an opportunity for you that she may felt that she, an opportunity that she may have missed? I am her firstborn. And to this day, I am convinced that she was telling me, keep pushing, don't give up. Because the years that followed after her death were profoundly difficult for me. I had what was uh, termed in the, the 40s and 50s a nervous breakdown in front of work one day in 2018. And mercifully, I was with a wonderful colleague of mine at the time who'd done a lot of work in the Middle East and been around a lot of soldiers and people who had seen combat. And he looked at me and he said, you just had a PTSD blackout. And I had no idea. All I knew was that I couldn't breathe. I was on the floor, hearts jet, my skin's hot, all of that stuff. So when he told me that, that was when I realized that that moment that I had predicted two and a bit years earlier, where because I said to my stepdad, I'm fairly certain I'm going to fall apart. I just don't know when. Once that happened, I made, an, I, I made a much more concerted effort to start to deal with the mental health issues that I always had, but suppressed so that I could function in order to protect my family, protect myself when I was in an abusive uh, marriage, and to protect myself now that I... Um, I work for myself and I, I take, I take care of myself. So. Really interested to understand that moment in time when your colleague said to you, you're having a PTSD moment. What had led up to that point in time during that day? Was it high stress? Was it something irregular or was it, do you think just this slow build, this snowball that had built and built and then, a small thing triggered it. I was actually cooking for a good while before that. And on this particular day, someone within the organization made a comment about myself and my team. And it pissed me off. But more importantly, it actually felt like I'd been slapped. So 
I was raised in an abusive household and I got married to an abusive individual. And my brain connects any form of rejection, whether it's valid or not, as a physical assault to my body. And when I was told what that individual said, it sent me over the cliff. I had been standing up talking to two of my colleagues and all of a sudden I could just, I felt myself, my hands starting to shake. My voice was tightening up and I had a tear or two rolling down my cheek. And my colleague looked at me and he said, don't pay any attention to them. They don't know what they're talking about. But it didn't matter at that point. And so I left the building with a couple of my colleagues to go across the road to get a couple of beers to kind of help recenter myself. And it was on the way to the pub that um, when recounting what had transpired, that I basically left my body. I, I was, I, I don't want to say that I was outside looking at myself, but it was more like I put up a closed sign and then just walked away because everything that happened after that, I didn't know was actually happening. Part of my brain was also telling me, stop putting this on. You're making too much of this. You're, it's, you're making it bigger than it actually is. And so that's the battle that's going on in my head. Is this real? Am I faking this? And how do I get my, myself back into my body? Because right now, I feel like just this gigantic void. I can understand how that must have been challenging. You talked earlier about detachment and the ability to create detachment for safety and security. And then here's this moment where there is nearly a physical detachment happening and you aren't in control of it, whereas perhaps previously you were in control of those detachment moments. It was it was a deliberate process. So it must have been really challenging to understand what was happening. It, it was, and, and thank you for that. Um, one of the things I have learned in the journey from that day forward, well, one of so very many things, I didn't realize that, how do I put this? I thought it was only me. It was in my head actually is what I would prefer to say. It felt in my head was where the conversation was happening. And I would use that conversation to either chastise myself or to convince myself that what I was feeling or what I was experiencing was simply being put on. And I'll say right now, an artifact of that is being raised. First and foremost, I'm a Latina, I'm from Panama. And being raised within that culture and being Black and raised within that culture and being female and raised within that culture, I was conditioned from a very early age to not necessarily suppress my feelings, but to not connect the feeling with the circumstances or the situation that trigger those feelings in the first place. And that's 
what made disassociation easier for me. It was earlier this year that I found out from my psychologist, shouts out Dr. Pusey, that pain isn't, physical pain is not what I've always been told it was. And that was fascinating to me because in my head, there's a very clear definition for what, what is pain. And he said, no, girl, no, you're in pain. And it took me aback because I'd never seen myself as a person who could be in pain. On that day, you're having that moment. Fortunately, you're with colleagues. You've just said that you were trying to reconcile the reality of it, making a judgment as to how real it was or how much it was, was fake. Always fascinated to understand how you felt at the time. And in particular, how long did it take to come back to that situation where you felt like you were body and soul together? Um, I don't actually know how long it took. Because my colleague had experienced this before with other people, first thing he started to do was touch me. Because that sensation of someone else's hands on me was what began to bring me back. Because the initial feeling that I have when I feel like this is that the ground is opening up underneath me and it's swallowing me whole and I can't stop it. So having him reach out and literally stroke me and whisper in my ear, it's okay, you're gonna be all right, you're right here. Having those things at the same time is what helped bring me back into my body. It still took me four years to recognize that it was real. That as, as again, Dr. Pusey likes to remind me, I am special, but I'm not unique. And it was in the belief that what I was experiencing was so unique that I couldn't find anyone who would ever understand me or understand what I was experiencing or even be able to articulate what I was experiencing. I got to tell you, that was one of the most relaxing days of my life to recognize that what I, what I go through, what I experience, all of those things are real. Whether anybody else can see them happening to me or not, completely irrelevant. That is what is going on in my body. In that moment, something has triggered me. What it is, I don't know yet, but something has set me off. And... I am learning to find space between the dysregulation of my nervous system and the experience that I'm having in that moment so that I don't just automatically disassociate, but can take a moment to, to absorb what's going on around me and determine, is this something I need to be afraid of? Is this something I need to get away from? Or is this, this thing in this moment not what my brain and its wonky chemistry is telling me that it is in this moment? SJC, you talked about 
being high functioning, having to be in your household growing up. You worked internationally away from your family. After this moment, have you maintained the same level of high functioning from a work point of view? God help me. Yes. <laughs> um, not only not only am I a Virgo, but I also have OCD. And I'm a black female and we overwork just by dint of existing. Like I've always been up here. When we're kids, black and brown children, especially if they're raised in the United States, at a very early age, are given what is commonly referred to as the talk. And it's part of that conversation. We are, especially girls, we are conditioned to understand that we have to be twice as good in order to be seen as equal to the people around us. And part of my schema, the re, one of the reasons that I overwork is because I'm continually trying to mitigate potential issues. And that's, I'm learning now that that's, that's my ADHD side with a healthy dose of OCD and Virgo scooped on top. But I overwork, period. It may not look like it to most people, but I am more often than not 10 steps ahead in my head as opposed to what's actually coming out in my uh, coming out of my mouth in the moment. And that overworking is part of the mechanism that I use to keep myself safe. Because if my employer sees me as valuable, I won't lose my job. And if I don't lose my job, I will continue to earn a paycheck. And if I continue to earn a paycheck, I can take care of myself. And that's my ultimate goal every single day, no matter what, is can I pay the rent? Can I pay the light bills? Da, 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 da. You've just given us a, a really in-depth, very transparent, very vulnerable understanding of, of what's happened to you in, in the last four or five years. So as we finish up on the island with you today, what post-traumatic growth events have happened in the last couple of years that have really given you these peak experiences that perhaps you thought you may not have got to before? Well, let me tell you, I have surrounded myself with what I like to refer to as my scaffolding. In the last, from about 2019 to present, a series of things began happening. The first was I was made redundant from my role. And I was made redundant towards the last quarter of 2019. I thought, oh, I've got some savings. I'll be fine. I could chill out and then start looking for a job in the new year. Next minute, the Ponderosa walks through and changes everybody's life. So all those plans that I had for myself as it pertained to finding a new role, completely dissipated. And I decided at that time, well, why don't I just start my own business? Fair. I've been in this gig for a while. I know what I'm doing. Let's do that. And in starting my own business, what I began to experience was what my focus tunnels are actually like, as opposed to what I previously experienced and how I previously existed in a communal work setting. And it created so much anxiety for me because I was literally missing meetings because I couldn't hear or rather 
didn't hear the meeting notification on my phone and on my laptop go off. And that created a whole new series of trauma, uh, trauma for me. And Dr. Pusey sent me to have some tests done to find out, is it organic or is this something that we can, that we can work with? And it turns out I have ADHD and have always had ADHD. We had no idea. So it took me a few months to get in to see my psychiatrist, Dr. Sergio Grama, who again, shouts out Dr. Grama, you're amazing, helped me draw the connection between the things that I experience as a young person and the challenges that I was experiencing in that year. And it was the strangest thing, but it made perfect sense when he said it. Basically, I had been building around me a series of structures, mnemonic devices, post-it palaces, my staff, the whole nine yards that would keep me focused, keep me on task, and always keep me going where I needed to go. I was now by myself in my house in complete silence. So none of those triggers, no visual triggers, no verbal triggers, none of that stuff was happening anymore. And when I focus, I lose track of space and time. It will be 10 a.m. And if I'm working on something for a client and I'm really into what I'm doing, I'll look up and it'll be 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, oh, I forgot to eat. <laughs> I need to do this, that, and the other thing. So after getting that diagnosis and after figuring out which medication worked well, not only with my antidepressants, but also helped to support the slowing down of the functioning of my brain. And when I say slow down the function of my brain, all it does is it literally just gives me that little bit of space between the thought and it coming out of my mouth so that I can either process it correctly or document it correctly, but more importantly, not forget it. Once I had the diagnosis, Dr. Grandma said, look, I think you're at a great place now. You need to start with an ADHD coach who will help you figure out how to exist as this person that you've always been, but have systematically ignored. And not because you didn't know that she was there, but because you didn't know that that was her problem. Damien Margetts, shouts out to Damo. He's a fantastic ADHD coach. And what he helps me do between him and Paul and my business coach, they help me understand that what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing are contextually real, which is a thing that I work on constantly because the person that betrays me most is me, except it's not me. It's a voice in my head that looks like me, sounds like me, has all of the things that would let, lead you to believe that it was me. But in fact, it's the malfunctioning of the chemical, whatever you know is going on in my brain. That person is real too, but what they are telling me is not objectively provable. And the thing that I have taken away as a result of my therapy with the, the literal blessing of my medication is a couple of key things. First and foremost, we as a society have screwed up little girls because we pretend that there's silence in the classroom and the fact that they're not acting out or at least not acting out in the ways that 
people are told that someone um, exists with ADHD would act out, that stuff is ignored. And it comes out in things like, like my report card used to say, words to the effect of, Charlotte's so bright, but if she could just focus, if she could just pay attention and not get distracted. And I was working hard to pay attention and not get distracted. I was working harder than anybody could possibly imagine to pay attention and not get distracted. And so one of the things that Damien has taught me is that a lot of his clients are female. A lot of us are getting late in life diagnosis and it is completely deconstructing our understanding of who we are and how we exist in the world. So working with my clinical professionals is helping me understand not, my, not just myself better, but understand that not only do I have a place in this world, but I am on a spectrum of everybody, the same spectrum as everybody else. I just need to lean a little bit more towards this side. And as a result, there's this trope about your ADHD being your superpower. Paul says, you don't get it. Yours really is. Because you can disassociate from the emotional impact of whatever decision you have to make, and you can coldly look at the details, assess the confines of the situation, and make the necessary decision, that gives me an advantage above a lot of people. Where it takes on a whole new level is, at least for me, is that if I think something, I am now actively trying to speak up because previously I would shut up because I assumed that everybody else in the room had the same thought and that my thought was super simplistic. Again, my saboteur saying, no, everybody's thought this, shut them up. He said, no, you don't get it. They haven't. There's a reason it never came up in the conversation in the first place because they haven't. And you're the person in the room who will more often than not be able to think so far outside the box that you can contribute in ways that a lot of people can't. And starting to recognize that that's what I've always done is it's part of the catalyst that's begun to change my life in the last four years. Because my ultimate goal is to see myself as a person, a thinking, breathing, feeling individual, as opposed to a mechanism to get something done. So trying to find a way to, as you said earlier, disassociate when I need to, but still be present enough to still execute when I have to. And that's the path I'm on now is unifying those two parts of my brain and discovering more about who I am and how I get to exist in this world. And so my mother telling me I wish I'd done more has brought me to this point because I will be able to do more. I'm not going to be held in the prison that I create for myself on a literal daily basis. <laughs> SJC, I think that's a great place to end. That beautiful laugh, that's a metaphor of understanding, nearly contentment with the path that you're on, obviously that clinical support network, and you talked about a number of people and coaches. I think we all understand how important it is to bring others into your life. 
and learn from their experience and help them um, allow you to understand who you are. Really, really loved your openness, vulnerability. The ability to express your feelings was outstanding. So thank you very much for being on Max's Island. Good luck with your journey. And hopefully one day you can be back on the island to talk to us about that other mountain that you've conquered. Thanks for being on Max's Island. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated the time and the space that you created for me this afternoon. In the details of life Each day was a blur Oh work and no play And how How it had turned out this way He told me his plan A short term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmin track sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky, completely alone, no emails or phone and nothing.